1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Deborah Stevenson about cultural policy beyond the economy, work, value, and the social. Uh, So welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, nice to be be joining you.
1: This is a great book. I think it's a really important book. Um, It's one of those books that I think kind of brings together a field and, and sets a bit of an agenda in terms of thinking about cultural policy um, and i suppose one of the sort of starting points for the book um, might be something like what are we actually talking about so what what actually is uh cultural policy
0: Ah, oh, dear well you know um definitions may be boring but um but they are very important um not just for you know for all of us not just researchers but for policymakers and um a straightforward way to understand cultural policy, I guess, is that you know it's the policies that governments of all levels make with respect to culture, but of course it's actually much more complex than this. and um and here we're right, you know we sort of land right in the heart of definitional imposition and slippage. Um, and and at the centre of this, and I think it, we always come back to it is the the what is culture question. And I've talked about in the book and, and elsewhere and others have as well, that understandings of culture as a way of life, which have become quite dominant, far too broad for the purposes of policy. Um, but equally, it's undesirable to constrain uh, the focus of cultural policy to just being about art with a capital A. So a cultural policy should not be an arts policy, but equally it cannot be a policy for everything, I think, is, you know, uh, where we sort of land. But that's, um, you know, there isn't one right answer, for instance, to what cultural policy is. But um, I mean, sorry,
1: I was going to say you you grapple with that problem throughout the book, actually, um, in terms of the boundaries of like, what is art? What isn't the boundaries of, you know, which particular policies count for for cultural purposes? And I guess one of the questions that um, I'm slightly intrigued by is a sense of why did you write this book, particularly in the context of cultural policy that seems increasingly intertwined with. The idea of economic policy. So, so what was the sort of inspiration to write this um, book about this kind of contested area that is cultural policy?
0: Well, it was exactly that, pushing back against what I uh, see as the incursion of the discourses and logics of economics into all areas of cultural policy, um, uh, as you know, and the ways in which we understand and appreciate culture has really been at the centre of my work from the outset. So in many ways this book is, is, is really just a, a continuation of that concern, but context is important here and, um, and it, we have to admit that it's been a losing battle. You know, the grip of economics, particularly via langu- the language of the creative industries, has become vice-like and uh, we're, we're, we're in a context where governments see culture as an economic sector full stop. They expect it to contribute to the broader economy and to be self sufficient, and and if it's not self sufficient, then um, then organisations need to be generating income from a range of sources: patronage, philanthropy, you know, on site retail outlets, etc. So. Um, and so the governments and, and government policy is, you know, right at the right at the centre of um, legitimating the notion of the creative industries. And my my concern, as I said, it's a continuation of a uh, of a of a career that's been focused on this. But um, a significant outcome is that the social content and determinations of culture um, and its value are largely reduced or explained in terms of the contributions they make to the economy. And I, you know, statement of ideology, I guess, but I think that's regrettable. So I, I felt there was a need to reflect on some of these issues and processes and as part of that um, to, to try and foreground some key elements of the social that I think have been lost and which need to be considered. Um, So, yeah, that's pretty much it.
1: I mean, part of the way you do that uh, pushback, that sort of offering of a critique and alternative, is to introduce a theoretical framework that you draw on, I guess, a kind of debate between some key thinkers, um, Bourdieu and, and, and Becker, but you also try and bring in Um, the work of Jürgen Habermas as as well. And I suppose I can kind of distill that um, theoretical project into a question about this idea of the art world complex. And I wonder if you could kind of introduce that idea and and say why it's sort of important to the book, how it, you know, maybe um, moves us beyond um, particular debates in cultural policy and offers an alternative to that kind of economic framework.
0: Well, what I think is particularly useful... Um, in the work of Becker is his argument that art worlds are multiple and comprised of um, competing um, competing interests, competing participants. And so, you know, we have the producers, we have governments, we have consumers, we have curators, we have artists. We, um, and Becker was uh, interested in the ways in which these Institutions and people and practices um, acted as kind of gatekeepers of the art, of their particular art world. Now, being a gatekeeper, of course, um, means having the power to determine what is and is not accepted as art. But also um, determining where the parameters of a particular art world are so it raises questions for me about networks and connections with other art art worlds and um, um, and and the um, so we're we're talking about particular forms of power and artists are just one form in that in that uh, in that complex but it it made it, it just made it possible for me to see. Um, art and culture and cultural policy is being formed and operating in the within a complex of art worlds you know part of a process and it opens up a space then for talking about the dynamics of art worlds including um where the, the where the, the economy fits and the relationship with the economy and um and here i think i, I talk about Bourdieu's work on the dynamics of the of the field being important and the forms of capital and structures of power that shape it um, are also important. And I just think that a, a notion like the art world complex, just, it, it just makes it possible to kind of engage with those different sets of ideas without kind of falling into the Bourdieu's, um cultural fields camp or the Becker art world camp it just sort of i guess it makes it possible to be a bit of a Bauer bird and, and sort of pull out the, the threads and the ideas from these different perspectives um, that uh, that are that are really useful um and 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 and, and make it possible you know that a, a flexible way to think about um, m- micro and macro forms of power, as well as um, understanding sort of social relations and how they they shape what happens both within a particular art world, as well as um, the relationships with other art worlds, and and the economy is uh, uh, is 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 just one set of influential interests and tensions and intersections um, that that need to be engaged with.
1: I mean, within that art world complex, one of the things that's really important and and you've sort of alluded to this already is how we draw kind of boundaries and and ultimately how hierarchies are constructed, maintained and and challenged. And one of the things that's um, important with the art world complex idea and and with your um, attempt to kind of steer a course between um, a very broad and a very narrow definition of culture is this sense of cultural hierarchies changing Um, and partially this is to do with the influence of things like uh, the creative industries framework but also it's to do with the way that you know we've seen some quite radical changes um, in terms of patterns of consumption and patterns of engagement because of the pandemic Um, and to sort of distill that into a a useful question for you I'm interested in the way that um, cultural hierarchies are important to cultural policy and how they might be changing as well.
0: Ah, yes, well, cultural hierarchies are both changing and staying the same, I think. Um, I think that um, if if we think about the work of Bourdieu on cultural hierarchies um, and their connection to class, then it's very hard to argue that the hierarchies he identifies are anything other than resilient, um, even in the face of um, being positioned as part of the creative industries um, and the strong expect- you know, expectations that I, we talked about before—that um, that the traditional arts will engage with the markets and raise external income, etc., cetera, etc.—the cetera. Um, social and political status of these cultural forms is remarkably resilient, and, um, and I think there's a, a strong view, um, you know, within. Um, that the forms of art that require and, and maybe deserve um, the support of government are those historically associated with excellence, those that um, are in the dominant cultural hierarchy. And I think that I think those views continue. I think they linger, um, and and that gets played out practically with funding bodies and their priorities. So there's certainly a challenging and reconfiguring of the art cultural nexus and hierarchies at work and has been for some time but because you know because of marketization discourses but the cultural hierarchies are resilient and I think that um I think that the, the key key there we go back to class I mean that I, I, I think that it's very hard to, to 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 move too far away from talking about class when you think about these cultural hierarchies Um, Now, with respect to the pandemic, I I, I mean, we've had some time to reflect on that now, haven't we? Um, Because I think, but I still think it's unclear, the effect on cultural hierarchies. Now, you know, I mean, we all know that the um, cultural institutions, organisations, cultural workers were absolutely smashed during the pandemic. But they have remarkable, recovered, remarkably quickly in many cases and there's you know sort of strong evidence at least coming out of Australia that demand for the products of culture are elastic even though we're in a period of relatively high inflation and there's you know sort of demands to cut back on expenditure there's no sign that those um that 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 those areas are really being um, are really being hit so so i think that there's there's that we've got a way to go there and thinking about how that that's going to play out i mean the pandemic did reveal the structural weaknesses of the sector and we know what they are the insecure nature of work key social and cultural fault lines of inequality um, but there's little indication that any of those have have really changed as a result of being noticed and uh, and i think that that's that is important. But um, but one one thing I, I would just say in that context, though, it is interesting that the Australian government has a new cultural policy out called Revive. And it makes a point of recognising um, that artists are workers, artists are cultural work uh, and cultural workers should have career structures that are long-term and sustainable and, and um, pathways, vocational pathways, fair remuneration. And I think some of that is, is, has come directly out of the pandemic and the experiences of our, of the sector in the, in the, um, in the pandemic. So I think that that's an important shift, but we also know that most people operate outside vocational pathways and, Frameworks where you can talk about industry standards. Most artists, you know, are operating on their own in the in their studios and not part of a, a kind of recognizable um, industrial structure. So, yeah, it's uh, I you know I think that I think we've still got a lot of thinking and observing to do with respect to the pandemic. But one of the things I think I said in the book was that there was a lot of talk at the time you know immediately that that the pandemic was going to change a lot of things and it gave us opportunities to to really reflect on 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 the um on the sector and i think i said you know i fear that what might happen is that very soon we end up back where we were and i and i do think that uh, to a large extent that's that's happened
1: one of the things within that is this question about funding um and and you've, you've again you know sort of touched on that a couple of ways in some ways you know public funding is, is a kind of central um issue or, or point of discussion for cultural policy researchers but also it shapes you know everything from whether the arts have an industrial strategy how you know a sector responds to a shock like a pandemic um, how particular ideas come to the fore or others are marginalised. And, and I'm interested really um, in, in a concept you, you introduce in, in the middle of the book and, and you kind of try and grapple with, which is this idea of, of cultural value. Um, and I'm intrigued to hear, I, I suppose, why cultural value uh, is something you wanted to write about and where it relates to things like uh, the public funding of culture.
0: Yeah, well, I think that, um, that, that I mean, cultural value, I think, is an incredibly difficult concept to, to, to nail down um, and it um, and, and one of the thing, reasons why I, I guess I, I I was thinking about it initially is that that in so many ways the language of value has become um, indistinguishable from a lot of the language of economics um, so you know in in the same way as the goals that are pursued through cultural policy are increasingly uh, economic goals um but you know I I think that so I so I do think that that's you know that that is that's a central part of the problem and it's um and 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 that notion of value is is um is very influential within cultural policy um and at least the discourses of cultural policy but there are other ways of thinking about cultural value, and and there's been a lot of work done, particularly in the UK, and um, um, and you know I know you've been involved in in some of that work, where um, trying to to think through what the you know how we should understand cultural value, and um, and and how do we we sort of pull it away from from that sort of dominant economic um, paradigm and uh and 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 then you get into grappling with intangibles really such as intrinsic value and the idea that excellent art will somehow commend itself which is always what you bump up against when you you're thinking about you know the intrinsic value of a work of art and and you know, and and these sort of these are difficult for sociology to grapple with, of course, because um, you sort of move into into different sort of um, explanatory frameworks. But there there can be no doubt that there is something intrinsically valuable and affecting about certain forms of art and culture. You know, the the, the sort of how does it make you feel question, I guess, um, and 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 some. Creative works can make the viewer or consumer feel a great deal. They can feel wonder. They can feel contemplation, anger, sorrow and so on. We know that. But if we follow much of Bourdieu's writing, then we also know that the the knowledge and the vocabulary necessary to appreciate and recognise art as art is acquired through a combination of class and education. So you're kind of constantly in this tension between these, you know, the the the, the recognition of what what art is, um, but the social, the kind of social framing of, of 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 that recognition and the and the language, you know, the language for talking about a work of art and its and its value um are are acquired through class position and education so you know I think these are some of the problems and um and there are you know you could argue that that's too totalizing a perspective um but I think it you know it's a complex task I don't have the answer to it but um
1: I mean you you develop that point in in quite a bit of detail in one of the later chapters of the book, and, and and this might be a good moment to sort of drill down a bit into that. So one of the things you, you kind of grapple with is the way that, um, as you've talked about there, you know, appreciation or um, the language of, of uh, art and culture is marked by significant inequalities, but also even the kind of who gets to be an artist is marked by significant inequalities. Uh, and I guess the book tries to say these inequalities are a problem, but also there are maybe alternatives um, and, you know, sort of critical um, practices that, that can challenge these inequalities. So what are some of the inequalities of cultural consumption and production, and what are some of the things you suggest in the book as, as possible alternatives?
0: I'm a sociologist, so the inequalities that I'm most interested in um, are those that, are, um, that relate to... You know, it's class, gender, ethnicity, um, you know, to name but three, of course. Um, so they're the, you know, just structural inequalities. And, um, and I also was just sort of going on to say that location is another source of inequality that I think I'm interested, that, that I am interested in with respect to cultural consumption and production. And, and I was just going to give the example of Sydney, which is, you know, there are vast inequities between the, in the provision of and resourcing of culture in the affluent eastern suburbs uh, compared with that, that, That um, occurs in the western suburbs and the bulk of government support for the arts goes to the east the major cultural institutions are located in the east as well as the most of the arts educational facilities publicly funded ones so location in that you know in here kind of maps with class and ethnicity. But if we take a broader view, then we've got, um, you know, big differences in cultural, between cultural provision in the cities and that of rural and regional areas. So class is part of the story here, but only part. So um, I think that these are the forms of inequality that I am most interested in. Um, and there's some of these differences were things that emerged um, in the Australian cultural fields project that I was part of, and we found that there were notable differences in the cultural consumption patterns of women and men, for instance, as well as significant class differences. But I think the challenge for cultural policy is how does cultural policy, how do you calibrate cultural policy to first acknowledge and then seek to address some of these inequalities? And I think that that's a, I think that's a big challenge and I don't think I don't think that there are very many examples of where cultural policy is really attempted to do that
1: yeah I, I guess the examples are basically things that are not cultural policy in the kind of formal uh, funded state supported sense so you know you, you talk in the book about things like socially engaged practice and community arts which have had a long you know, almost sort of struggle um, to be seen as legitimate ways of doing art and culture um, as compared with, you know, say more traditional things about, you know, putting on plays or um, exhibitions in galleries. Um, and intriguingly, and, and again, this is sort of linked to the point about geography and place. You also talk about artists run initiatives. So are, are any of these kind of alternatives, um, I suppose, kind of working in the context of inequalities?
0: Well, I think it's. Um, I think well, I mean, community arts, as you say, is kind of a long a long history, and I think it, it's probably one of the very few cultural policy programs that was developed explicitly to try and address social inequality in some way by focusing on um, disadvantaged communities. But um, the you know I mean, commun- the demise of community arts actually interesting in the Australian context in particular and a lot of what happens in Australia you can you can you can track the same trends elsewhere in particularly in the UK but um the demise of community arts was absolutely accompanied accompanied by the rise of the discourses and objectives of the creative industries and um you know the community that was the community arts program of the Australia Council which was instrumental in introducing notions of the cultural economy and cultural planning in particular into the Australian context. So it may not have been its objective, but it is possible to pinpoint the moment that the discourses and expectations of cultural policy shifted away from social disadvantage and community arts to the cultural economy and active engagement with uh, with the cultural economy. So I think that 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 is that 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 relationship is is really interesting, and there has been some interesting work done tracking it. but um socially engaged practice, and well, I mean they're older than we 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 like to imagine, of course, and community arts initiatives, I think they're important, but and and they can be definitely but be points of resistance. But how successful they they can be, I mean, it really depends on their relationship to the state and to and to funding bodies and 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 i think and i don't think that's a straightforward relationship um you know i mean it, these these are very much part of the art world complex that i was talking about they there there are lo- lots of initiatives where it has been governments at different levels that have that have been the drivers of what we might know as an artist-run initiative. Um, so, so I think it's I think it's unclear. I think that there is definitely a lot to be, uh, to be, you know, sort of noted and and uh, in terms of, of 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 a point of resistance. But I but I do think there are also questions about you know who gets to participate in these initiatives and collectives and what social class do people engaged in these practices and initiatives belong to um, it would be interesting to know if someone's done that research maybe 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 you know Dave or maybe you've done it but um you know I do think that there are questions of class there um the the and and the relationship between classes the class of the artist and the practitioner and the class of the community that is being engaged with um yeah, so so I think that um, definitely, definitely areas we need to know a lot more about. Definitely areas that have have a lot of promise. But when I get when I talk, as I did a, a few years ago, to the head of a um, of a major government arts uh, policy body, and that person is talking about artists run initiatives as being sort of where attention needs to focus. Um, the attention of governments need to focus in terms of cultural policy and the development of culture in the um, in the state, then we're not really talking about resistance,
1: are we? I mean, it, it, it's interesting because that has animated uh, some really nice um, and, and sort of intriguing Danish work. There's, there's quite a bit of work um, in, in Britain on on that precise question of that sort of, you know, co-option and... Um, Resistance. I, I guess if there maybe practical examples of contested alternatives. Uh, one of the things the book does is is maybe talk through some. I don't know whether I'd call them like ideological, theoretical. Um, in some cases, kind of methodological alternatives, which is the idea of um, culture being bound up with uh, possibly kind of positive impacts on wellbeing, and then culture being part of a broader sustainable development agenda, um, whether in you know, sort of Australia, the UK, or in, in other parts of the world. Uh, and again, I suppose I've got the same question of, to what extent are frameworks, um, ideologies, discourses of things like well-being and sustainable development alternatives, or you know, are they still at risk of being captured by that economic way of thinking about culture?
0: Oh, I think they're absolutely captured by. It. Um, uh, I, I think. Well, I mean, the argument that I run is that um, that, that that well-being and 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 the like have, uh, are proxies for the social, and in much cultural policy and planning, and that um, and that rather than directly address the social and the social conditions within which art and culture are made and consumed and valued. Um, the, the these proxies are used um, uh, as a sort of you know instead of, of actually doing that that really hard work of engaging and and the, and and quite often the proxies are you know that there there are measures there are tools there are indicators that are quantifiable and rankable if that's a word um, so what concerns me is that not only do they you know, strip the social of its messy content um, and, and and sort of obscure the causes of inequality and privilege, for instance, um, but they they are also frequently underpinned by economic assumptions, and they often highlight um, individual responsibility, for example, um, and really don't grapple with, with, with the social. And, um, and even though I think governments often embrace uh, these proxies for the best of reasons, in fact, it's often, I, I, I think, you yeah. know, I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but it's often left-wing governments that, and political parties that are most attracted to, to um, these kinds of um, policy approaches in part because they do want to deal with the social but they, I think, they're very thin, and uh, and I and I don't think they they really take us very far away from the sort of economic drivers that that are that are at the at the core of what um, what we we need to address within cultural policy. Unfortunately,
1: the final uh, sort of substantive um, issue the book grapples with before. Uh, we we wrap up and, and and think about cultural policy futures. Is what about the actual workers? You know the artists, uh, the musicians, uh, the designers, um, you know the directors, writers, etc. Um, where do they figure in all of this? And and I guess um, you know part of what the books project is 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 to try and make sure. Um, that they play an important and kind of central role, but at the same time, you're trying to highlight some of the problems and issues of how cultural work is is organised. And, and again, you know, you've mentioned them at a couple of points um, over our conversation. So, so where does cultural work uh, figure in in the book's analysis?
0: Um, well, cultural work is is um, to a large extent, and, and and this this is one thing that is possibly shifting. Um, So I gave the example of the latest Australian cultural policy. Um, But cultural work has been one of the big silences of cultural policy. And I guess um, there there are probably a number of reasons for this. But um, an important one um, is that there's just a a very strong tradition of not thinking about a lot of cultural production as work. Um, And and I sort of spent as you know quite a bit of time in the book sort of thinking about some of the ideological and discursive reasons for this and one is the the notion of vocation which I think is implicit in much thinking about creative work an artist you know almost by definition is imagined as someone who has some kind of calling that you know compels them to create Um, and And there's that strong expectation that's sort of grounded in some of these these discourses that artists will will work for nothing. Um, They'll work for love or, you know, exposure. And um, there are also some blurred lines between being a professional and being an amateur and so much around Th- this notion of of, of 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 income, you know, people identify as a cultural worker, as an artist, as a profession professional, but they earn almost nothing from from that from that labor. Um, and and those those kind of boundaries are um, are really really quite quite interesting, I think, and 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 I think they're important because I do think they they have kind of structured the way we think about a lot of what we now talk about as cultural work but we still can't get a handle on exactly who 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 this cohort is Um, you know it's it's a it's a very slippery uh, concept i um i think but um yeah so there are a lot of contradictions here and um the language of the creative industries um, positions, you know, artists is often, you know, is not, if not, you know, they're sole traders, they're, they're people, they're small businesses, um, so it's it's very yeah, I think it's a really important area and 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 was one of the things I wanted to do was just sort of track some of those um, those really um, pervasive discourses that shape the way artists are imagined within um, contemporary society.
1: I mean the book has like real sort of um breadth and and depth to it and um, hopefully you know we've given a sort of flavor of, of some of the ideas in the book to to the listeners the book i suppose all the way through is concerned with the question of what's the future of cultural policy how do we reimagine cultural policy but obviously some of this comes in particular in the conclusion and as a way of wrapping up our conversation um, are there ways to kind of think differently about cultural policy you know you mentioned almost the sort of failure of the pandemic moment to give us um, a new blueprint for thinking about culture thinking about society Uh, the ongoing you know as you've just been discussing tensions about um, the status of the artist as as a worker grappling with you know public funding models and, and you know new ways of Um, arguing for the value of of art and culture in development and things like this. So I suppose what what are your sort of um, prospects? What what do you sort of think in terms of the chances of reimagining cultural policy in society?
0: Well, I'm I'm probably going to sound a bit pessimistic, I'm afraid. Um, I don't think there's one answer to this question um i think it's about starting points and and questions that we need to ask um we, we you know the the, the, the the first the first challenge is to is is to question the dominance of the economic and uh primarily primarily through uh creative industries discourses um i don't see any sign that 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 is necessarily happening, but um, but it's it's critically important. I think we also need to think about linkages between the cultural porf- the culture portfolio of government and other portfolio areas. Education, important one. Workplace relations or industrial relations, another important one. Um, and it's very difficult for that to be initiated within the cultural sector. A cultural portfolio, of course. Um, because usually structurally not very powerful, um, so I think that I think that there's a there there are some issues there that need to be addressed. And I was I was thinking actually I don't know whether I, I mentioned this in the book or not, but um, many years ago David a um, well-known cultural economist, asked the question of whether Australia needed a cultural policy, and I was wondering whether it's not a question of whether we need one or whether a cultural policy is needed um, particularly at least beyond you know symbolic symbolic functions but the question really is what can cultural policy reasonably achieve and how can these concerns be, be managed um, across different portfolios and levels of government and these are really big questions and You know, hopefully the book makes a small contribution to grappling with them, but I I fear there may be more questions than answers in some of this, um, unfortunately.
1: I mean, in terms of that, you know, more questions than answers and and, and grappling with these big questions, what's next in terms of your own work? Um, It strikes me that, as you've just described there, you could easily do a sequel to this book or, or in fact, probably, you know, two or three uh, follow-ups that... um, Deep dive in, into some of the particular um, issues that each chapter looks at, and you know, um, tries to situate the analysis in, in response to whether it's government or social responses um, to the context we, we find ourselves in, or are you kind of thinking actually? Cultural policy has sort of had enough of me for a while um, and are you thinking about doing something completely different?
0: Well, I think at the moment I'm kind of I'm quite quite occupied with two big projects which both have a bearing on cultural policy. Um, one of them is um, uh, work that I'm doing with uh, Justin O'Connor and uh, uh, Christiane de Berkeley on um, uh, UNESCO as a global cultural policy operative. And uh, and some of these questions unsurprisingly uh, are a figure very you know loom large in that project because we are very interested in in where the creative industries fits into a lot of what UNESCO is doing um, in, in different through mm-hmm. its different policy project uh, processes. So that's um, that's a big project and hopefully some some uh, some writing will come out of come out of that over the next little while. And the other project is is looking at cultural infrastructure, which I think is a really critical area of, and that relates to cultural policy, and it's quite interesting that that there's a little bit talking about proxies for the social. Um, as there's some cultural policy, cultural infrastructure policy work that is often a proxy for actual cultural policy. So I think that's interesting. But this is looking at how major cultural in, in, infrastructure is in, becomes embedded within communities, and uh, and and how that. Uh, and and that when i talk about communities here i'm talking about cultural communities as well as um social communities so so that's another big both of those projects funded by the australian research council and um and again there will be some uh some writing coming out of that uh that work too so i think that that's probably where my thinking is at the moment. Both of them really still focused on cultural policy, and um, and some of the, and exploring in a bit more depth some of the issues that have come up in, in in this book.